Birds, Patient and Public Engagement podcasts. Hello and welcome to this podcast about systemic scleroderma and Raynaud's syndrome. My name is Mel Brook. I'm the Patient and Public Engagement Programme Director for BIRD and today I'm talking to Dr John Pauling. In this series we'll be looking at the different types of scleroderma and how it affects the body. We'll also look at how scleroderma is diagnosed, what kinds of tests there are and explaining some of the terminology. We'll also talk through who it usually affects and what kinds of other things might be a contributing factor. In part two we'll look at the medications and treatments and in part three we'll look at research news and other support services and sources of information. Just to say, obviously I'm catching John between clinics and we're recording remotely, so there might be a few email pings and a little bit more disturbance than we would generally like. But I don't think it detracts from the content. And we're very grateful to John for taking time out to do this podcast with us. Hello, John. Thanks for joining us again today. Well, thanks for having me along. We're going to talk about scleroderma today and I think it would be good to start off with by explaining what scleroderma is in terms of an umbrella term because it's a very complex condition as I understand it. Yeah. So the, the word scleroderma means thickened skin. So sclero for thickened and derma relating to anything related to the skin, dermatology. And the word scleroderma is an umbrella term which really describes a large or broad range of different conditions in which the skin can become thickened or tightened. Um, and some of those conditions are very common and fairly benign so that some people who have varicose veins, for example, can get some thickening of the skin around their ankles and feet as a result of this venous insufficiency. So that itself is a form of scleroderma. Um, there's also a common form of scleroderma called morphia where people get small areas of small usually round or oval shaped areas of thickening of the skin which is highly localized to a very small patch on their body and we actually call that localized scleroderma mm -hmm. but when i use the term scleroderma the vast majority of the time i'm referring to a condition called systemic sclerosis in which thickening of the skin is one of the major clinical characteristics now, in systemic sclerosis, uh, you can get thickening of the skin, but some people with systemic sclerosis don't have any thickening of their skin at all. And that's one of the reasons why we've generally uh, abandoned the term scleroderma when you're talking about systemic sclerosis, although it, it had been used for so long that we still use the term scleroderma and people with systemic sclerosis will still refer to themselves as having scleroderma. Um, but I'll say you can have systemic sclerosis without having any skin thickening at all. So in systemic sclerosis, there are three major pathological events which occur. So three things that go wrong with the body. So one of them is this thickening of the skin. And that's because of the body begins to lay down excessive amounts of scar tissue within the skin itself. And the body can also lay down excessive amounts of scar tissue in other organs of the body, such as the lungs or the gastrointestinal tract, 
uh, or the heart mm. or other major organs. And this is one of the reasons we use the term systemic sclerosis, because this isn't just a condition of the skin. It's a systemic disease, which means it affects multiple different organs within the body. So this abnormal scar tissue formation is one of these pathological hallmarks of scleroderma. The other uh, pathological hallmarks are abnormal blood vessel shape and functioning, uh, which is where the primarily the very small blood vessels that you would need a microscope to look at begin to behave abnormally mm. and they grow abnormally as well. And uh, the symptom most commonly associated with these vascular changes is Raynaud's phenomenon. We'll talk more about Raynaud's phenomenon as we move forward. Okay. Uh, but these vascular abnormalities can also occur in some of the internal organs of the body, uh, including the heart and the lungs and the gastrointestinal tract and the kidneys. So again, even though from a patient's perspective, often one of the earliest signs of systemic sclerosis will be Raynaud's symptoms, as clinicians, we need to be alert to the possibility that there might be vascular problems occurring in some of the internal organs of the body. And some of those vascular problems might not be actually causing any specific symptoms. So we need to do tests to look for how the vascular problems could be affecting the body. And then the final aspect is inflammation, the final pathological hallmark. So patients with systemic sclerosis can develop inflammation, which, mm -hmm. is, where, which is where the body's immune system is attacking itself effectively. And this can occur in the muscles and the joints and sometimes the bag that the heart sits in or the bag that the lung sits in within the body. Mm -hmm. so, so there are three heavily interrelated pathological processes going on simultaneously. Uh, in systemic sclerosis and one of the uh, priorities for us as scleroderma physicians is to see the patients as a whole and think carefully about how this condition could be affecting the internal organs of the body as well as the skin um, and other you know and, and and how the condition is affecting the body in terms of this abnormal blood vessel functioning this mm -hmm. abnormal scar tissue formation and then any significant inflammation that needs to be treated. So, John, we think in, in a lay term, we think of scars as being something caused by an injury, but we're not really talking about that kind of scarring, are we? We, we are talking about that type of scarring. So but what's happening in systemic sclerosis is it's occurring all over the body. So I often use the analogy of, a, of an injury when talking to people about systemic sclerosis. So most of us will have cut ourselves with a carving knife at some stage or another. Mm -hmm. And what we will find is uh, where we cut ourselves, uh, the first thing our body does is actually produce factors in that area that make the blood vessels want to shut down yeah. to, to prevent us bleeding excessively. And so we have um, uh, factors in, in our bloodstream, for example, that activate cells like platelets that make the blood vessels want to close down to avoid blood loss. And then we will then heal that area with a scar. So a scar is um, where you get excess scar tissue. And the, the particular, the main form of scar tissue is a protein called collagen. And you mm -hmm. get these, um, this mat work of collagen fibers, these protein fibers that help seal that area. And the idea really there from, from a protective mechanism is our body's trying to form a barrier to prevent that 
injury, that site of injury, the, the cut with the carving knife from allowing bugs and other potentially serious um, infective pathogens from getting into the body. But then over time, our skin um, will remodel and heal itself. And we've all been in scenarios where we've, we're telling somebody about an awful cut we gave ourselves with a knife or, yeah. or, so, or you know, after falling off a bike or something. And then we, we kind of pull up our sleeve to show them our elbow or our finger or whatever it is we injured. And then lo and behold, that particular scar tissue has disappeared. Yeah. And this whole process occurs in systemic sclerosis. But one of the things that sets systemic sclerosis aside is sometimes the scarring of the skin, whereas a, a cut or an injury, you would see that scar tissue improve within weeks and months. In systemic sclerosis, there is an improvement that can occur, but it can take many years before you see that skin soften and remodel in a way that it begins to more closely resemble normal skin. And the other big problem with systemic sclerosis is there are part, the skin is a very effective organ at remodeling and fixing itself and healing itself. Mm -hmm. But there are other organs in the body, such as the heart and the lungs and the gastrointestinal tract, where once you establish scar tissue, they're less able to remodel themselves to heal that tissue. So unfortunately, for example, with interstitial lung disease or lung fibrosis mm. when developed fibrosis or scar tissue within the lungs unfortunately the goal and the main priority of treatment is to prevent that developing further as opposed to reversing any established scar tissue that's already formed because our lungs are less able to do that unfortunately so i guess we're going to go on and talk about what causes this injury and it's going to be to do with autoimmune isn't it i think that's right. So it's one of the autoimmune rheumatic diseases. We, we don't know exactly what causes systemic sclerosis. We, as with all of the autoimmune rheumatic diseases, we think this is, is an environment, a gene environment interaction. So people have to have the right hereditary genes, which they've had from the day they were born. Mm. Um, and there are certain genes that we know increase the likelihood of autoimmunity, which is where the body's immune system attacks itself. Mm -hmm. so people have to have the right genetic predisposition and then the right environmental trigger needs to come along to set off a cascade of events that leads to these kind of conditions developing. And in terms of the triggers, the environmental triggers that are thought to be important in systemic sclerosis, there is a viral hypothesis where we think certain viruses, and often we don't know which virus it may have been or when that virus struck. Uh, we think that cancer actually is uh, could be an important trigger in some patients. And I think most people know that the immune system is important for fighting off infection. Uh, what many people don't fully appreciate is how important our working immune system is in fighting off cancer. Mm. One of our theories is that when patients encounter a cancer, they create or mount an immune response against that cancer to eradicate it successfully often. But in doing so, that sets off a chain of events that leads to autoimmunity. And then the final thing is environmental toxins. And for many patients, we have no idea what those toxins might be, whether it's you know particulate matter coming out of the back of buses or whether it's um, something in cigarette smoke or whether it's uh, other environmental toxins that some people 
get exposed to. So we have found that, for example, people who work in certain mining industries, if they're mining uh, chemicals like silica, can develop scar tissue on the lungs as a result of their occupational exposure. Mm. Asbestos is another uh, chemical that has effectively been banned from the building trade now, but which used to cause scar tissue or scarring lung disease. Um, and uh, this has led to a lot of interest in uh, people looking at potential environmental toxins uh, that could be associated with the development of these conditions. So is it something that's been around for a long time or something that's on the increase then, if we're talking about the sort of potential of environment triggers? Yeah, we the very first descriptions that we can find in the medical literature on scleroderma were probably conditions where people had encountered bacterial infections that in the days before antibiotics were untreatable, uh, that they got over that bacterial infection, but then it set off a sclerosing skin condition, mm-hmm. which we actually call sclerodema, which is slightly different. So a lot of the early early descriptions of skin tightening disorders were probably a reaction to um, untreated bacterial infections. Thankfully, with modern-day antibiotics, we hardly ever see people develop skin tightening disorders as a result of an infection now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, most of the skin tightening disorders we see now, or certainly when it comes to conditions like systemic sclerosis, um, you know, are completely unrelated to uh, a bacterial infection. I suspect systemic sclerosis was always out there, but it was it, people. It took many, many decades for people to really start piecing together uh, how these conditions were interlinked. I think a very important aspect, which really has only been tackled in the last fifty years, is the fact that you can have systemic sclerosis without any skin tightening. And so if you look at some of the early registry studies from the 70s of systemic sclerosis, most people had skin tightening all over their body Mm. who were in those registries, whereas now only about a third of our patients have this diffuse form of systemic sclerosis with very widespread skin thickening. And a number of patients in um, disease registries of scleroderma don't have any skin tightening at all. Mm. But, but we, they would be recognized by modern scleroderma physicians as having systemic sclerosis because of some of these other um, uh, disease manifestations affecting internal organs, for example, that aren't necessarily visible on the skin. Hmm. So I guess it, the obvious question at this point for me is how does something that affects you systemically and your skin end up in rheumatology? That is another very good question. So I think part of it reflects the fact that well, some or significant proportion of these patients will develop overt inflammation in other body systems, such as their joints, which has traditionally been managed by rheumatologists. I think also the recognition that these are systemic diseases and rheumatology, and, and more importantly, systemic autoimmune rheumatic diseases, which mean, uh, which are traditionally being looked after by uh, rheumatologists. But in some parts of the world, systemic sclerosis is largely managed by skin specialists. Mm. So in Germany, for example, most of the major scleroderma physicians are actually dermatologists rather than rheumatologists. Uh, in the UK, it's generally being managed more by rheumatologists. And 
as a rheumatologist, I would say that's uh, appropriate because we do look after other conditions like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis mm. um, and polymyositis, which are multi-system disorders. So we're, we're familiar with the way that these conditions behave and progress and evolve and which treatments work and which treatments don't. Mm. So rheumatologists really, or rheumatology isn't as singularly focused as you would think, is it nowadays? No. I mean, often when I meet people and tell them I'm a rheumatologist, that they assume I'm seeing people with uh, worn out knees or bad backs, mm. but actually rheumatologists see very little of that. And increasingly, people have referred to us as inflammologists because mm. we look after this group of conditions where the body of autoimmune conditions in which inflammation occurs. So uh, I, I think most, uh, a lot of rheumatology now is actually around the autoimmune rheumatic dis disorders. Mm. Although obviously there are branches of rheumatology in terms of bone health, uh, which are completely unrelated to inflammation. Mm, it's really interesting. And I wonder if eventually one day a rheumatology department will get a slight rename into rheumatology and inflammation or something like that. Yeah, possibly if it's not too many syllables, mm -hmm. uh, put people off. Yeah, absolutely. So back to scleroderma. Um, does it affect things like the nails as well with... Um, we talk, I know we're going to talk about Raynaud's specifically, which is sort of fingers, but I was just thinking nails, people don't think of that in terms of skin, do they? No, well, when we teach medical students, we, we always en encourage them to examine the nail folds because the, the nails often give clues to a whole host of different medical conditions, not, not just rheumatic disorders. Within rheumatology, the nails can be a... Uh, an area where you can get pick up a lot of diagnostic clues early in the course of uh, disorders. Mm -hmm. it, when it comes to systemic sclerosis and the nails, the nails themselves aren't generally affected in systemic sclerosis, although you do need a, blood, a good blood supply to the fingers to grow healthy nails. So sometimes people with systemic sclerosis will find that their nails become dry and brittle and less healthy looking as a result of the poor blood supply to the ends of the fingers. But where um, the nails are vitally important in systemic sclerosis are tests we do uh, called nail fold capillaroscopy, where we use a microscope to look at the um, small fold of skin at the very base of the nail, uh, what we call the nail fold, and we look at that area uh, near the cuticle to look at the capillaries. And this is one of the few areas in the body where you can directly visualize the very smallest blood vessels in the body, which are the, the capillary loops. Mm. Um, and what's striking in systemic sclerosis is how abnormally shaped these capillary loops are. And also um, the number of capillary loops it often decreases. So you, you, you're seeing a capillary uh, um, nail folds in which there are fewer capillaries and that the capillaries are present are very abnormally shaped or enlarged or sometimes instead of looking like a hairpin uh, very slender and going up in one direction turning the corner and coming down like a hairpin you can end up with very abnormal looking nail fold capillaries that look more like bushes and we actually use the term bushy capillaries to describe these very strangely shaped capillaries that can sometimes be seen in scleroderma and other conditions related to systemic sclerosis, such as myositis. 
So the nails can reveal a lot. That's really interesting. And I, I guess this is a, we've talked around scleroderma and the processes and some of the things that cause it. So I guess we should really move on to talking about the kinds of tests that help confirm and diagnose it. Yeah, so the, the, the earliest symptom of systemic sclerosis is usually Raynaud's phenomenon. So it's so the, this abnormal functioning blood vessels in the fingers, where the fingers behave abnormally in response to cold exposure or emotional stress leads to uh, symptoms that we call Raynaud's phenomenon, yeah. which is often defined as the fingers changing color in response to the cold, going white or blue or red uh, when the when the fingers are exposed to uh, to cold air. And, and that's typically, as I've mentioned, one of the earliest features of systemic sclerosis. And, and you know, many patients, unfortunately, there is a delay between them developing Raynaud's phenomenon symptoms and being given a diagnosis of systemic sclerosis. Mm. Because they'll often visit their GP who will, and describe their symptoms, and the GP will quite rightly say, oh, yes, this is Raynaud's phenomenon and not realizing uh, that they have a form of secondary Raynaud's phenomenon, which is caused by an underlying condition. And I have a lot of, lots of sympathy for uh, general practitioners, because if you took a practice of 5,000 patients, which would be a large practice, they would be expected to have uh, four or 500 people with Raynaud's phenomenon symptoms within that practice, but they would have either no one at all or maybe a single person with systemic sclerosis. So whereas Raynaud's phenomenon is very common and affects about one in 10 of the general healthy population, possibly even higher in younger females, systemic sclerosis is exceptionally rare and only affects about one in 5,000 people. Okay, so Raynaud's is a standalone condition as well as maybe being a clue towards the scleroderma. Scler exactly. Yeah. And other autoimmune rheumatic disorders. So we see right. Raynaud's in conditions like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and Sjogren's syndrome and myositis. So we see it in other conditions as well. Time for a quick cuppa and a stretch. While you've got the kettle on, I'd like to just mention our new text and donate service that will help us to fund these podcasts. All you'd need to do is text BIRD to 70460 to donate £5. This costs £5 plus a standard rate message. Thanks for your support. So one of the challenges for us as rheumatologists is identifying which people with Raynaud's phenomenon might have a, an underlying condition, mm. systemic sclerosis. So this is where the diagnostic aspects come in. So as we teach our medical students, the first and most important part of diagnosis is the history and examination. Yeah. So from a history perspective, people with primary Raynaud's, which is this benign vasospastic disorder, will typically develop Raynaud symptoms in late adolescence or early adulthood. But if I meet somebody who develops Raynaud symptoms for the very first time in their 40s, that for me is a red flag that there might be, or there must in fact be something to explain that recent emergence of symptoms. Okay. Doesn't necessarily mean it's systemic sclerosis, but there might be something else that is causing Raynaud's to occur as a secondary phenomenon. 
Right. So that could be a recent change in their medication or treatments for cancer, or it could be uh, that they have you know, a, a hematological problem or a neurological problem or, or an endocrinological problem, which is a hormone problem that's causing the blood supply to their fingers to be reduced. Right. Developing Raynaud's later on in life is certainly something that needs to be investigated further. There's a bit of a red flag. It, it is absolutely a red flag. So the other red flags, uh, so to speak, are if people have developed sores on the, on the ends of their fingers. And because we know that with people with systemic sclerosis, certainly sometimes the blood supply to the fingers can be so poor that the tissue at the very ends of the fingers is starved of oxygen and nutrients, which can lead to the skin breaking down mm -hmm. and ulcers forming. And again... Yeah. There are other conditions in which the blood supply to the fingers can be so poor that the skin breaks down. So, so the presence of that doesn't mean it, this is definitely systemic sclerosis, but it again tells us that there's something serious here going on that needs to be looked into further. It's, it's a process of putting all the bits of the puzzle together, isn't it? And this is just a couple of bits of the puzzle. So what, what else do you look for? What else do you test for? That's right. So... I think that describing it like a puzzle is exactly right. It, and I often use the analogy, it's like a jigsaw. So you have to you have to put all the pieces in place and then step back and look at the clinical picture. Mm. So, yeah, so from a history point of view, let, developing Raynaud's later on in life, any sores on the fingers, puffiness of the fingers can be a feature of early systemic sclerosis. And uh, so we look for puffy fingers. And mm. sometimes we, we know that the blood vessels, as they expand and contract they, they allow fluid to leak out of the blood vessels so that can also cause symptoms like carpal tunnel syndrome mm. sometimes, sometimes a, a feature of the history i'd consider a concern from an examination perspective i'm looking for any puffiness of the fingers but also for any over skin tightening that may have already occurred so when skin tightening occurs in systemic sclerosis it virtually always affects the fingers to some extent so that is where my eyes are initially drawn mm -hmm. and in fact actually if there isn't skin tight if the skin tightening elsewhere but not on the fingers it makes me think there's probably another explanation for the scleroderma for the skin tightening uh, but you can also look for other features of systemic sclerosis that occur in the skin such as uh, telangiectasis which are these little small dilated red blood vessels that exist in the skin Mm. or little abnormal areas of calcium occurring in the skin, which we call calcinosis cutis. And then we examine the heart and the lungs and the kidneys, you know, listening to the lungs, for example, for any features that might suggest scar tissue formation on the lungs. Mm. And then in terms of laboratory diagnostic tests, the most important tests that we do are tests to look for autoantibodies. So antibodies are very small immune proteins uh, that are vital, actually, in our ability to tell our immune system or help our immune system to clear infection. But sometimes people will develop antibodies which which target not infective um, bacteria or viruses, but antibodies targeting our body's own tissues. Mm. And we call these autoantibodies. And we can measure and test for autoantibodies uh, and very helpfully, from a diagnostic point of view, we find that there are different autoantibodies associated with different autoimmune rheumatic disorders. Mm -hmm. And there are about 10 antibodies that are highly specific for systemic sclerosis. 
So they're not diagnostic of systemic sclerosis, but if people have the right symptoms and clinical signs and they have one of these 10 antibodies, yeah, makes systemic sclerosis far more likely. Yeah. And then the other area that we've already briefly touched upon is these abnormal capillaries that can be found at the nail fold. Mm. We have um, uh, nail fold uh, capillaroscopy here uh, in Bath, which allows us to actually look at the capillaries and count the number of capillaries and again use that as a diagnostic aid uh, for identifying patients with very early systemic sclerosis who may in the future develop skin thickening and or scar tissue on the lungs but at the time we meet them for the very first time we that they, they don't have any of those features and i think this is one of the things that's leading to an apparent rise in the um prevalence of systemic sclerosis is just better recognition and earlier diagnosis of people with these conditions uh yes that would make sense because if you can diagnose it you can the numbers go up don't they going back that's like right 50 years or more everything was tended to be lumped together and in very few different labels that's exactly right and the, the other thing and we've undertaken some recent work looking at the the prevalence of systemic sclerosis in the uh, United Kingdom. And it does appear to be creeping up, but thankfully that appears to be partly related to the fact that we're treating our patients better. And so people are uh, surviving longer with the condition and as well as living older, obviously. So this, Mm. that's leading to a gradual rise in the prevalence of systemic sclerosis. But Mm. the actual incidence, which is how many new people develop systemic sclerosis in each year, seems to be relatively stable, thankfully. Does it take a long time to gather all these different pieces of the puzzle, all the tests, results, and things to put it together, or is it quite quick? It's it, the the nail for capillaroscopy. You get that. You can get that information immediately when the test is done. Right. Uh, uh, the obviously the clinical features that you're looking for are usually apparent immediately as well. When it comes to the antibody work, there are different ways you can look for these antibodies. Some results we'll get back within 48, 72 hours. For some of the much rarer scleroderma-related antibodies, we have to do more specialised techniques and Mm. work closely with Professor McHugh's laboratory at the uh, University of Bath. And they they have a technique called immunoprecipitation, which is more labour-intensive and expensive, but allows us to look for some of these much rarer antibodies that occasionally occur in systemic sclerosis Mm. to get that particular result back but usually you know we're not having to wait before we can decide on what treatments required you know even pending the outcome of these uh, additional investigations we can get on and treat things and uh, usually as i say and like a jigsaw the, the the overall picture is evident even if one piece of the jigsaw such as the particular antibody or the nail fold capillary changes even if that isn't necessarily present you can have a rough idea of what you think is going on based on other factors mm. so given all the pieces of the puzzle and the symptoms that people can develop with systemic sclerosis or scleroderma what are the main health risks to them uh, so there are the, the there are potentially serious and life-threatening risks in terms of the heart and the lungs and the kidneys. The serious complications of systemic sclerosis generally adhere to what 
has been termed the 15% rule, which means that about 15%, 1-5% or 1 in 6 people will develop severe problems with scar tissue formation on the lungs or will develop significant problems with the blood vessels on the lungs behaving abnormally, which we call pulmonary arterial hypertension, mm. or will develop significant problems affecting their kidneys, what we call the scleroderma renal crisis, or significant problems affecting their gastrointestinal tract, leading to problems with the absorption of nutrients from the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, so whilst you know, across all of our patients, only about one in six will have any one of these particular severe complications. It does unfortunately mean that, you know, if you have six patients with systemic sclerosis, you could well find that all of them have a particular problem within one of those organ groups. Mm. Um, but thankfully, actually, it's quite unusual for people to have the very or the most severe forms of gastrointestinal involvement and have another major organ involvement such as pulmonary hypertension usually one problem will uh, trump the others in terms of its relative importance from a patient perspective so some people will have no internal organ involvement whatsoever but have very severe skin involvement mm. and i say that skin involvement can mean that the skin throughout the body has become uh, affected so the skin of the tummy and the chest and uh, the upper arms and upper legs um, there are other patients who have no internal organ involvement and no widespread skin problems but they can get very severe problems of ray nodes and these issues with digital ulcers forming on their fingers and again that's one of the factors that, could, that generally falls under this 15 percent rule um, so as I hope I'm making clear, systemic sclerosis is what, as clinicians, we call a heterogeneous disease, which means it affects every patient slightly differently. Mm. Um, and, uh, and you know, I often will tell medical students, you know, we, if, we, if we had 12 different patients with systemic sclerosis, you know, if you, on initially listening to their ex lived experience of the disease and, and looking at their clinical features and examination findings, you wouldn't automatically assume they all have the same condition necessarily. Mm -hmm. It's only when you really start to understand how this disease works that you begin to understand that even though these patients can appear very different from each other, they actually do have far more in common than, than they do uh, uh, differ. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then there are other parts of the body that can be affected as well, which again are non-life-threatening, uh, like the Raynaud's symptoms, but can be very intrusive. So yeah. for oral and dental health right uh, it can be a, fa a problem in people with systemic sclerosis often because the amount of saliva that they form is lower than the healthy population we call that a seeker symptom or xerostomia which means dryness of the mouth and unfortunately we need saliva to help maintain healthy dentition and healthy gums so if people's saliva levels drop then that can um, lead to cavities forming and increase the likelihood of dental abscesses and other complications within the, the mouth and jaw. Uh, another issue that people with systemic sclerosis can have when it comes to oral health is uh, difficulty actually opening their mouth as widely as the, the general population. So we call that microstomia, where the, 
the, the mouth opening is restricted and this can make dental work very difficult to undertake but it can also actually impact on the way people uh, speak and eat mm. so uh, there are exercises that people can do to help um, uh, stretch and maintain the uh, subtlety of the skin around the mouth uh, and I'd encourage people actually listening to uh, to this um, podcast to to uh, look at the Scleroderma Reynolds UK website where they can get more information. Yeah, actually, not just about oral and dental manifestations of scleroderma, but about all of the different manifestations yeah. of systemic sclerosis. Yes, I mean that's what that's a really good resource to point out, and we can put that in the show notes. So is the jaw opening caused by the tightening of the skin on the face or is it caused by something else? Yeah, so the, uh, the, the difficulty opening the mouth is primarily related to the tightening of the skin around uh, the mouth itself rather than a problem with the jaw causing difficulty opening the mouth. Okay, that does make sense, yeah. It can be more of a factor in some of the other uh, rheumatic disorders where, where if the jaw bone joints themselves are affected. Okay, so we've talked. We're talking about patient symptoms, and we've talked around a few of the kind of questions that I would have had about it. It seems like it's a variable thing in terms of age onset. Is it more common in men than women? Is that anything that comes up? Yep. So it it can affect any age. Uh, although the commonest age group is between the age of forty and sixty for the first initial symptoms yep. of uh, systemic sclerosis. It's and this is true of most of the autoimmune rheumatic diseases, it is far more common in women than men. Right. If I see, if I undertake a clinic and see 12 patients in, with systemic sclerosis in that clinic, I would expect 11 of those uh, patients or 10 or 11 to be women and only one or two to be men within a, within a routine clinic. Do we know how sure. get more autoimmune? Women, that's exactly right. So most of the autoimmune rheumatic diseases are more common in women than men. And so going back to the red flags, actually, when it comes to Raynaud's symptoms, if men develop Raynaud's symptoms, that, again, is something that almost warrants an explanation because we know that even primary Raynaud's phenomenon is far less common in men than it is in, in women. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, if, if, if I see a, a man who does develop Raynaud's symptoms in their 40s or 50s, you know, I, I'm, my next question is why, you know, what, what could be causing this? Um, and and, and the, the, the converse aspect of that is it, it makes it doubly di- difficult for younger women to be diagnosed promptly because it's so easy for them to be incorrectly labeled as just having Raynaud's where, when there is something more significant going on. So, you know, you really, we really need to be alert to the possibility of systemic sclerosis in any age group. And in fact, even childhood, frankly, it's exceptionally rare in childhood, but, you know, systemic sclerosis can occur in children. Is it something that is kind of happening slowly within the body then? Because we said that one of the first sort of diagnostic clues is Raynaud's and they may not get that until they're kind of midlife. If they then get diagnosed with scleroderma, is it usually the case that they've probably had this for quite a long time? Yeah. So that's, I think it differs for the different forms. So right. the, the, the people, 
certainly, and, and this is where, again, the antibodies can come in helpful. So there are certain antibodies that are associated with very widespread skin involvement where usually, you know, patients will develop their Raynaud symptoms in the February and by March or April, they know there's something more serious going on because they've started to develop widespread skin changes. Right. So it can be quite quick in some time. Absolutely. Yeah. And if and actually in those patients, sometimes if they, they, the skin appears to come first, because if they develop their skin changes in August, because the weather's been warm, they've not noticed the rain notes, and then their rain notes symptoms only become apparent later in the year when the weather turns colder. Mm. So we still think the vascular injury was probably came first, but from a patient perspective, they they notice the skin changes before the the, the vascular problems of the ray nodes. So mm -hmm. it, in some patients, all of the problems can emerge very very rapidly. And I say there are certain antibodies that are very strongly associated with that type of clinical presentation. In other patients, and particularly patients with limited skin disease, which is where if skin thickening occurs, it is generally limited to the fingers and hands mm. it could be far more insidious and slowly progressive and it actually in recent work research we've done looking at systemic sclerosis in the uk what one of the key findings was that about one in five people with systemic sclerosis wait over 10 years before they get their diagnosis of systemic sclerosis after initially visiting a gp mm. being labeled as having raynaud's phenomenon and so what's happening in these patients is they, they've, they've had systemic sclerosis all along, but their GP has initially said, oh, this is just Raynaud's, don't worry, it's very common. When in actual fact, there is something more serious going on than they do, you know, which has be, been overlooked. And, and, and I, I really can't emphasize enough that it's not really the fault of the GPs because yeah. the vast majority of people presenting to a GP with Raynaud's do just have Raynaud's, for want of a better term. Uh, and actually, you know, most GP practices will have either nobody with systemic sclerosis or perhaps one patient, maybe two uh, maximum. So mm. it, um, it is a very rare disease, which adds to the challenges of diagnosing these conditions. Uh, yeah. properly. It kind of brings me on to the next question that was forming in my head, which is about evaluating the symptoms. How do you measure from appointment to appointment, once you've identified someone has this condition, how are you measuring the progress of it? Yeah, that is a very good question, and one which the scleroderma community really struggles with is how do you know how do you measure disease activity? Mm. Some of the other autoimmune rheumatic diseases, in comparison, it's easy to compare uh, to measure disease activity. Yeah, we've actually developed scoring tools which allow us to attach a number to say how active we feel somebody's rheumatoid arthritis is, for example. In systemic sclerosis, it is far more difficult because of the way it just slowly evolves almost in the background to the point where actually it's imperceptible to patients often. Mm. The, the, the clearest indication to patients that things are changing is the gradual accrual of more damage. So patients, for example, if the lungs are affected, patients will notice that they used to be able to walk all the way to the library and back without feeling breathless and after after a year they find that they're a bit puffed by the time they get to the library and then a year later they'll find that they're having to stop on a particular bench halfway to the library you know so they'll see this gradual yeah. change in what they can do 
if people are having more ulcers, that would be generally, uh, you know, would most patients and clinicians would consider that as a feature that's telling us that there's something still going on mm. that, that need potentially needs to be treated more aggressively to prevent new ulcers from forming. Uh, but it can be very difficult. And, and unfortunately, the, the clearest indication that the disease is progressing is, uh, and without meaning to sound glib, is looking for evidence that the disease has progressed. And so we're slightly always looking behind ourselves to, to give us an idea as to how the disease is evolving. Mm. We, we have got some, uh, some clinical tools that we use to assess the amount of skin that's uh, being affected in systemic sclerosis, for example, that we are able to map and chart and actually use that to say to patients, uh, often in, in scenarios where the patients feel things aren't improving, we can say, actually, if you look at your skin score, we are beginning to see some changes that suggest that we're beginning to turn a corner here. So uh, we do have some tools available, but that is definitely an area that needs uh, more research. So is it down to people kind of staying aware and alert about their own situation and trying to notice these gradual changes as much as anything. Yeah, I think it's definitely a case of patients you know, discussing any new symptoms that have developed or emerged from one visit to the next and reporting any new problems that are occurring. Um, and then and sometimes we find ourselves in a scenario where we'll say to people, no, that's actually unrelated to systemic sclerosis, or we need to investigate that as its own potential separate issue. And sometimes we will say to patients, yes, that would fit with what we would expect at this stage. And we would, you know, and the one thing I will emphasize is there are some patients with systemic sclerosis who don't evolve or progress at all, where the disease stays very quiet uh, and just sits in the background. Yeah. And I think, I think that really speaks to the fact that we don't yet fully understand how the different causes, these environmental triggers that we talked about earlier, mm. how they affect disease progression. And it might be that some of those triggers, for example, you know, the, you know, if it were an environmental toxin or a virus is something that the body isn't continually exposed to. And actually in those scenarios, it might well be that the disease doesn't progress in quite the same way. Mm. And you mentioned scoring tools. Is that to a patient, that's a questionnaire, isn't it? Are there questionnaires that you use in scleroderma clinics? Uh, yes. So we, yeah. there are questionnaires that have been validated looking at how patients function and quality of life in scleroderma yeah. and Raynaud symptoms um, and skin symptoms. Uh, the, the main skin score we use is actually a clinician assessment tool where we, we actually feel the skin at Mm. different parts of the body to feel how tight and tethered the skin feels and then we actually come up with a total score which gives us an idea as to how mm. widespread and severe the skin involvement is mm. so it's a combination of clinician and patient reported outcome instruments that we use to measure yeah disease progression and then that will lead on to the shared decision making that is medications that's right mm. Do make sure you join us again for part two, where John talks us through all the treatments and support for these conditions. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And just a reminder that you can sign up to hear about more podcasts and all the patient engagement research opportunities that are upcoming by joining our mailing list. 
all you have to do is send an email to admin at birdbath.org.uk. The link is also in the text description of this podcast. This podcast is supported by UCB, who have had no editorial control on the contents. Thank you, UCB. We would also like to thank Health Watch Bath and North East Somerset for helping to fund this podcast.